Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's forum on Professor Randy Barnett's new book, Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People, uh, with a foreword by George Will. Uh, let me also welcome our C-SPAN audience, uh, as well as those watching through Cato's live streaming. Released just two uh, days ago at, uh, by HarperCollins Broadside, this book is sure to receive wide attention, and deservedly so. In fact, I've just learned that it's available at Costco, so uh, uh, people who are watching this on C-SPAN can, after this forum, run right out and pick up a copy of the book. Um, it's uh, likely to receive wide attention, as I said, uh, because it speaks in a fundamental way to the political divisions we see in America today, divisions about health care, gun control, affirmative action, immigration, and so much more. Um, but about uh, the far uh, more fundamental division we see in our understanding of our basic law, the Constitution, and what it authorizes. If we want to better understand and appreciate those surface divisions, that's where we have to turn because that's where they're grounded. And just to be clear, in speaking about the Republican Constitution and the Democratic Constitution, Professor Barnett is not making partisan points. Rather, as the book's subtitle suggests, he's alluding to two fundamentally different understandings of the Constitution's first three words, we the people. Profoundly different conceptions that have deep roots in our constitutional history and far-reaching implications for our political order. Once we understand those basic differences, we'll have a far better grasp of the more immediate issues that so divide us as a nation today. For that, let me introduce Professor Barnett, who will speak about the book for about 30 minutes. We'll then turn to Professor Robert Percival, who will offer a commentary of 15 minutes or so. I'll introduce Professor Percival just before he speaks. Professor Barnett will then respond. We'll have a brief exchange between the two and then we'll turn to questions from you in the audience, after which we'll have lunch upstairs in our George M. Yeager Conference Center. The book is available, uh, by the way, at substantial discount just outside our F.A. Hayek Auditorium, and Professor Barnett will be glad to sign a book for you. Randy Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and teaches constitutional law and contracts. He's also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. After graduating from Northwestern University and the Harvard Law School, Professor Barnett tried many felony cases as a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago. In 2004, he argued the medical marijuana case of Gonzalez v. Rach before the U.S. Supreme Court, and in 2011-12, he represented the National Federation of Independent Business in its constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Professor Barnett has been a visiting professor at the Harvard Law School, the University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, and then Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala, 
He delivered the Kobe 2000 Lectures in Jurisprudence at the University of Tokyo and uh, Dashisha University in Kyoto. In 2008, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies. His publications include more than 100 articles and reviews, as well as nine books, including Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, published by Princeton in 2005, and legal case books on the Constitution and on contracts law. His book, The Structure of Liberty, Justice and the Rule of Law, published by Oxford in 1998, was published also in Japanese. Professor Barnett's opinion pieces appear regularly in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. Uh, he appears frequently in public affairs media. In 2007, he was featured in the documentaries The Trials of Law School and In Search of the Second Amendment. And he portrayed an assistant uh, prosecutor in the 2010 independent film Inalienable. He is here to discuss his new book, Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. Please welcome Professor Randy Barnett. Well, thank you, Roger, and thanks to the Cato Institute uh, for um, hosting this wonderful event. Um, I, I look forward to the commentary that we're about to receive and, uh, and to um, discussion that we have afterwards. In 1789, James Madison had a problem. After living for 10 years under the Articles of Confederation, Madison had worked tirelessly behind the scenes to bring about a constitution to devise a new, con uh, a convention to devise a new constitution. In September uh, of 1786, he participated in a preliminary convention in Annapolis. By 1787, he had secured enough support of key players like George Washington and Ben Franklin to convene a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. Now, the pressure was on the 36-year-old Madison. Before journeying to Philadelphia, he crammed for the gathering like a student for his exams from a chest full of books that had been supplied to him by his friend and mentor, Thomas Jefferson. For the cerebral Madison had a truly fundamental problem to solve. Like many others, he had concluded that the American regime governed by the Articles of Confederation was grossly inadequate and contrary to what the Virginia Declaration of Rights referred to as the common benefit, protection, and security of the people. But why was this happening? Why had the republicanism of the founding generation failed them so? For the previous 13 years, the people of the United States had been governed by 13 separate entities. State governments under the Articles of Confederation were thought to be Republican. The founders had thrown off rule by the aristocratic few in favor of rule by the democratic many. Under aristocracy, if the many are screwed by the few, the democratic or Republican alternative was premised on the belief that the people wouldn't screw themselves. This is Cook County. This is how we talk in Cook County. <laughs> but this, it's, this Republican theory, the people wouldn't screw themselves, had unexpectedly proven to be false. State legislatures had, been, had begun enacting debtor relief laws that both undermine the rights of creditors and impaired economic prosperity 
which required a credit market that can safely rely on the obligation of private contracts to collect from debtors. States also erected a debilitating assortment of trade barriers to protect their own businesses from competing firms in neighboring states. The result was a national economic downturn, a really great depression. So Republican government, as it was then conceived, was clearly not working for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people. But why not? Now, to answer this question, in April of 1787, largely for his own benefit, Madison composed an essay um, that he, that's called The Vices of the Political System of the United States. But it was not an essay for publication. It was an essay for his own benefit. It was like a working paper for him to figure out what the game plan needed to be for the upcoming Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And so we have this document. It's a remarkable document because it shows how he was sorting through this problem. What was the problem? In Vices, Madison identified the source of the problem in what he called the injustice of the laws of the state. So first of all, the problem was that the laws the states were passing were unjust. The causes of this evil, he contended, could be traced to the representative bodies in the states, and ultimately, he said, to the people themselves. This, he wrote, called into question, quote, the fundamental principle of Republican government, that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians both of the public good and of private rights. Madison concluded that we must be far more realistic about popular majorities. All civilized societies, he explains, quote, are divided into different interests and factions, as they happen to be creditors, creditors or debtors, rich or poor, husbandmen, merchants or manufacturers, members of different religious sects, followers of different political leaders, inhabitants of different districts, owners of different kinds of property, etc. In a democracy, the debtors outnumber the creditors and the poor outnumber the rich. The larger group can simply outvote the smaller one. The majority, however composed, he continued, quoting him, ultimately give the law. Whenever, therefore, an apparent interest or common passion unites a majority, what is to restrain them from unjust violations of the rights and interests of the minority or of individuals? To illustrate this problem, Madison posed the following thought experiment, quote, place three individuals in a situation where the interest of each depends on the voice of the others and give two of them an interest opposed to the rights of the third. Will the latter be secure? The prudence of every man would shun the danger, he said. Likewise, he asked, will 2,000 in a like situation be less likely to encroach upon the rights of the 1,000? In short, under the democratic version of republicanism of the day, there is nothing stopping a majority of the polity from engaging in self-dealing at the expense of the minority. Now, Madison concluded that what was needed was nothing less than a new republican form of government that would address the weakness of democratic state governments while preserving popular sovereignty. As Madison put it, quote, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction and at the same time preserve the spirit and form of popular government is then the great object of which, which, to which our inquiries are directed. Now, Madison was not alone in locating the ills facing the nation in the majoritarian democracies of the states. 
at the Philadelphia Convention, Edmund Randolph, our first Attorney General of the United States, observed that, quote, the general object of the convention was to provide a cure for the evils under which the U.S. labored. And he said, in quote, in tracing these evils to their origin, every man had found it in the turbulence and follies of democracy. Elbridge Gerry from Massachusetts stated, quote, the evils we experienced flow from the excess of democracy. Roger Sherman of Connecticut contended that the people, quote, immediately should have as little to do as may be about the government. Governor Morris from Pennsylvania noted that every man of observation had seen in the democratic branches of state legislatures precipitation, in Congress, changeableness, in every department, excesses against personal liberty, private property, and personal safety. Even those who had remained more amenable to democracy, like George Mason of Virginia, admitted that, quote, we had been too democratic, unquote, in forming state governments. At the conclusion of the Philadelphia Convention, anxious citizens gathered outside Independence Hall to learn just what had been produced behind closed doors. The convention had been governed entirely in secret. It is said that as Benjamin Franklin left the building, a woman in the crowd called out to him, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And Franklin is said to have responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. But while the new form of government devised in Philadelphia was not a monarchy, neither was it democratic. Yet Franklin still called it a republic. That's because the meaning of that term, republic, or republican, had just been changed by the men inside the building from which Franklin was leaving. A republican constitution was no longer a democratic constitution, if it ever truly had been. In my book, Our Republican Constitution, I explain how these two fundamentally divergent views of the Constitution divide us even today. I call these divergent views the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, but I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political um, conservatives who hew, to some aspect, who hew to some aspect of the Democratic Constitution and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Many people, perhaps most people, flit between conceptions, depending on which happens to conform to the results they like on a particular issue. I contend that what divides those who adhere to a democratic constitution from those who favor a republican constitution are two fundamentally inconsistent visions of we the people, the first three words of the constitution, that lead to two radically different conceptions of popular sovereignty. Those who adhere to a democratic constitution hold a different conception of we the people and popular sovereignty than those who adhere to a Republican one. A democratic constitution views we the people as a group. We the people as a group. And the purpose of a constitution is to empower the majority of the people to rule. The idea of we the people as a group is we the, the people must rule we the people must rule as a group, and the only way the people can rule as a group is for a majority to rule. How else are they going to do it? And therefore, the purpose of the Constitution is to set up a democratic mechanism to express the will of the people. It makes perfect sense. In this scheme, unelected judges are problematic. 
because they are thought to thwart the will of the people as reflected in their legislatures. Under a democratic constitution, therefore, the will of the majority should generally prevail. In contrast, a Republican constitution views we the people as individuals. As the Declaration of Independence affirmed, we the people are endowed with certain inalienable rights, among which are the individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then the next sentence of the Declaration, and I spend a chapter one entirely on the Declaration of Independence, the next sentence of the Declaration says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Not all powers, not unlimited powers, but their just powers are what they derive from the consent of the governed. But the purpose of government is to secure the individual rights that the previous sentence had just referred to, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in short, under the Republican Constitution, first come rights, and then comes governments to secure the pre-existing rights of we the people as individuals. And then, to ensure that government is held to its just powers, the Constitution is put in writing, such as this, to provide the law that governs those who govern us. We are all governed by laws that are made by governmental agencies, but this is the law that governs those who govern us. Now, as I explained in several chapters of our Republican Constitution, the Constitution secures these rights primarily in two ways. First, by means of federalism, in which the federal government is limited to its enumerated powers, while allowing 50 states to adopt a diversity of social and economic regulations. And second, by a separation of powers in which the national powers to make, execute, and enforce the laws are placed in separate hands. But in addition, judges too are servants of the people, and they have a duty to keep legislators Within, the, with the, with, within what the Declaration calls their just powers by invalidating irrational and arbitrary laws. After all, we the people cannot be presumed to have consented to delegate to our servants in the legislature the power to arbitrarily or irrationally restrict the exercise of our pre-existing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The death of Justice Antonin Scalia combined with Senate Republicans' refusal to consent to any nominee until after November, has raised the stakes on an issue that should always be at the forefront of any presidential campaign, but usually isn't. And that is the future of the Supreme Court and our Constitution. As a result of his death, selecting the next justice is already a prime topic of the ongoing presidential contest. But now is the time to be clear about the nature of the choice we face. Most today assume that the current divide on the court is political in the sense that the left side favors progressive outcomes while the right side favors conservative ones. But that's not truly the case. For example, when I argued the case of Gonzalez versus Raich before the Supreme Court in 2004, one might have supposed that the left side of the court would have favored my clients who sought to use medical marijuana as authorized by California law, while the right side of the court would have voted against so liberal a drug policy. Yet, Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justices Thomas and O'Connor sided with us, while the four most progressive justices stood in opposition. 
And then we lost six to three when Justices Scalia and Kennedy joined the ranks of the progressives. What was at stake for both sides, however, was not a policy dispute over marijuana, but a difference over constitutional principle. In particular, a principal disagreement over the sort of constitution we have and the proper role of judges in enforcing it. Do we have a democratic constitution in which the rule of the majority takes priority unless expressly prohibited? If so, judges should generally defer to the will of we the people as expressed by their representatives. Or do we have a Republican constitution in which the rights of we the people take priority over the decisions of their servants in the legislature? And if so, judges have a duty to ensure that the servants of we the people remain within the constitutional limits on their powers. In Raich, the liberal justices put their principled commitment to majoritarian rule at the national level above their compassion for the sick, the suffering, and the dying. Kind of have to admire them for that. Conversely, the three conservative dissenters put their principled commitment to constitutionally limited federal power above their abhorrence of drugs. Now, we cannot be sure why Justice Kennedy joined the liberals, but Justice Scalia made his reasons clear in his separate concurring opinion in Raich. Under the Necessary and Proper Clause, he wrote, the court must defer to Congress's judgment that it was essential to reach homegrown and consume marijuana to enforce its ban on the interstate trade. In this way, did Justice Scalia adhere to the central tenet of the Democratic Constitution, judges should defer to the majority of legislatures. In short, in Raich, six of nine justices exercised judicial restraint in deferring to the Democratic will of Congress when it came to enforcing the scope of Congress's power under the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses. But three justices were prepared to draw a line at federal power to prevent citizens from producing and consuming a good on their own property, leaving the regulation of such activities to the states. So in Raich, six justices hewed to the Democratic Constitution, while three were prepared to enforce the text of the Republican Constitution. Now, the same divide over the proper role of judges in enforcing our Republican Constitution arose 10 years later in the Obamacare case. But by then, the numbers had moved in a Republican direction. There, as in Raich, the four more progressive justices were monolithic in their deference to Congress's claim of power to require citizens to do business with a private company. But now, four conservative justices, including both Scalia and Kennedy, stood forthrightly in favor of the Republican Constitution's limits on federal power. As we know, however, the fifth swing vote was by Chief Justice Roberts. As I explain in the book, and I tell the story of the Obamacare case, in which Todd Gaziano, who's sitting in the second row, plays a prominent role in the, in the first chapter of the book, um, Chief Justice Roberts affirmed that Republican limits on the scope of federal power by holding this is Chief Justice Roberts holding that the individual purchase mandates were indeed beyond Congress's power under the Commerce and the Necessary and Proper Clauses. On the other hand, he then invoked the Democratic Constitution's conception of judicial restraint, adopting what he called a saving construction that turned the individual insurance requirement into an option to buy insurance or pay a modest non-coercive tax. As he put it, quote, Granting the act 
the full measure of deference owed to federal statutes, it can be so read. And he then defended this move by insisting that, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices, unquote. Now, perhaps he expected this split-the-baby approach to be received by conservatives with equanimity. But it wasn't. Many on the right were outraged by what they believed it was, that by, because they believed that it was the job of the Supreme Court to hold Congress to its enumerated powers and thereby protect the liberties of we the people, even from a bare majority of Congress who enacted Obamacare. In this way, the Obamacare decision was a political inflection point in how conservatives conceive of the role of judges. Ever since the rise of modern conservatism, conservatives have been conflicted. On the one hand, unlike the left, they are committed to following the original meaning of the Constitution. But on the other hand, many have long professed their belief in the doctrine of judicial restraint. Yet ironically, as I explain in the book, the doctrine of judicial deference to the will of legislatures was promoted by political progressives precisely to free Congress and the states from the constraints on their legislative power that were in our Republican Constitution. As a result of Chief Justice Roberts upholding Obamacare in the name of judicial deference, the trend of opinion among conservatives have moved sharply from judicial conservatism and restraint towards what is best called constitutional conservatism, which favors judges enforcing the original meaning, original meaning of the text, even if it means invalidating a popularly enacted law. With the judicial philosophy of the court now evenly divided, the next appointment will be crucial. For years, Democratic presidents have been adept at selecting justices who adhere without fail to the Democratic Constitution. In contrast, the record of Republican presidents has been deeply disappointing. Appreciating the differences between the Democratic and Republican constitutions helps reveal why this has happened. By selecting judges and justices for their commitment to judicial restraint and deference to the majoritarian branches, Republicans have actually been nominating and confirming jurists who adhere to the Democratic Constitution in practice, at least when the chips are down. No matter how much conservative justices might profess a commitment to follow the text of the Constitution, as Chief Justice Roberts did when he agreed with us that an insurance mandate was unconstitutional, they are always inclined to refuse to enforce the constitutional text against the Congress or the President, as Chief Justice Roberts did when he turned around and adopted what he called a saving construction that changed the meaning of the statute so he could uphold it. And it is standard operating procedure for Republican-appointed justices in the name of stare decisis to adhere to a post-New Deal Supreme Court precedents that have overridden the text of our Republican Constitution. Since Democrats will never nominate a full-blown adherence to the Republican Constitution, Restoring our constitutional republic will require a Republican president who will. A Republican president who will seek out judges and justices who appreciate the Declaration's affirmation that first come the inalienable rights of we the people as individuals and only then comes government as their servant. A, and justices who realize that the democratic will of the majority is not the solution to the problem of constitutional legitimacy, but instead that the majoritarianism of democracy is the very problem 
a Republican form of government is needed to solve. In short, now more than ever, we need a president who will appoint judges and justices who understand that only a Republican Constitution, like ours, can, if followed, secure the liberty and sovereignty of we the people, each and every one. Thanks. Well, thank you, Randy. We're now going to have comments from Professor Robert Percival. Um, Professor Percival is the Robert F. Stanton Professor of Law at the University of Maryland School of Law, where he has taught since 1987. He is also director of the school's environmental law program. Professor Percival is a graduate of McAllister College. He earned his MA and his law degree from Stanford University, where he was editor of the Stanford Law Review and uh, was named Nathan Abbott Scholar for graduating first in his class. He served as a law clerk for Judge Shirley M. Hofstadler of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Byron White. He also served as a special assistant to the first U.S. Secretary of Education. Professor Percival is internationally recognized as a leading scholar and teacher in environmental law. Since 1992, he has been the principal author of the country's most widely used casebook in environmental law, Environmental Regulation, Law, Science, and Policy, now in its seventh edition. And he's the author of more than 100 publications that focus on environmental law, federalism, presidential powers, regulatory policy, and legal history. Professor Percival has taught as a visiting professor of law at the Harvard Law School and at the Georgetown University Law Center. He has taught and lectured extensively in China and has taught and lectured altogether, his bio tells us, in 29 countries on six continents. I gather you've missed Antarctica so I've far. I've been there, but they never invited me to talk. To, to lecture, <laughs> I see, okay. You don't speak penguinese. Um, this is uh, Professor uh, Percival's second visit to Cato in the last three months, and we're delighted to have him back. Please welcome Professor Robert Percival. Thank you, Roger. Uh, as I've traveled around the world, one thing that I always carry with me is the Cato publication, The Constitution. Uh, this one's been to uh, scores of countries, and I wanted to thank Roger because he just presented me with a new copy of it uh, that I can keep uh, bringing with me. Uh, what I like about it is the fact that it's the oldest written constitution in the world, and it's the envy of the world, particularly when I go to China. The Chinese people are dying to have an independent judiciary and to develop a tradition of respect for the rule of law because they live under a one-party system where politics reigns supreme. The Communist Party gets to decide what cases the courts will hear and often how they are going to be decided. Um, when I teach constitutional law, I usually start with the following historical proposition. I say, what our founding fathers were faced with was 
the ineffectiveness of the Articles of Confederation and the fact that we had just won a revolution against a despotic king. So their task was to figure out how can we have a strong federal government that will be effective as the Article Confederations was not, and at the same time protect individual liberty so that we won't face the situation that we faced when we were under the thumb of King George. And their solution, as Randy uh, indicated, was two things, federalism and separation of powers. Divide powers among the judiciary, the legislative branch, and the executive, a unitary executive they decided upon, and have dual sovereignties, federal and state governments. Now, throughout history, that has been a recipe for lots of conflict, political conflict, between the branches of the government, between the state and the federal government. That's part of the constitutional design. Uh, in his book, um, Professor Barnett uh, writes very engagingly, very accessibly, uh, tells some great historical stories, and I think this is a book people should buy at Costco for a very wide audience. Uh, however, I think that its fundamental premise that there are two diametrically opposed interpretations of we the people sets up kind of a false dichotomy that tends to push us into further division. Uh, in fact, I think that there, uh, while he's demonstrating that it's possible to view the same document in two widely different ways, what we have today uh, is an understanding that the Constitution both protects individual rights and it allows government to function effectively, usually through majoritarian rule when it doesn't trample too much on individual rights. The real conflict is how do you draw the lines between when we decide to protect individual rights and when we reject certain constitutional challenges. Professor Barnett quite candidly starts out by noting how when the Obamacare legislation was being debated in Congress, the Republicans were having a hard time coming up with ways to defeat it, and no one could think of a constant reason why it would be unconstitutional. He developed a theory as to why it would be, and it was instantly embraced by the political party that was trying to stop the legislation from being adopted. At the time, most constitutional law scholars said, you don't have a prayer of succeeding on this, but after it was embraced by a major political party, in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts among judges that had been appointed uh, by Republican presidents, it got a much more favorable reception, and but for Chief Justice Roberts deciding it was, unconstitu it was constitutional as a tax, it could have been uh, struck down. Now, what this illustrates is how st strong our ideological divide is today, even in the judiciary. When I was a law clerk for Justice White, uh, things were quite different. You couldn't predict in advance how the justices would vote on a particular issue. Uh, when White was nominated to the Supreme Court, his confirmation hearing lasted 90 minutes. His most significant statement was he was asked, what is your view of the role of the judge? And he said, it is to decide cases. 
He was confirmed by a voice vote of the Senate a few weeks later. My, how things have changed since then. We now have knockdown, drag out, ideological va uh, battles over uh, Supreme Court nominations. And the courts have become subject to this perception that they are, in fact, uh, influenced by politics rather than uh, by law. Now, the book uh, advocates many uh, things that uh, I'm sure reflect conservative preferences as to how they would like the law to change uh, among uh, the prescriptions of the Republican Constitution is that there should be a huge cutback in federal powers, that courts should not defer to administrative agencies. Uh, at various times in recent years, precisely because Congress has not been very active in passing a lot of legislation, particularly in the environmental area where uh, most of my scholarship is, uh, the way that change is brought about is through litigants coming up with clever new theories to try out on courts and try to sell the court that a law, even one that's been in, in uh, uh, effect and working well for decades, should be struck down on constitutional grounds. The classic case of that was the American trucking case from 2000, where a three-judge panel of the DC Circuit voted two to one that the Clean Air Act was unconstitutional on non-delegation grounds. And when that case came up to the Supreme Court, it was quickly realized that that would be a pretty radical change. It would basically strike down most all of the legislation that authorizes health, safety, and environmental uh, regulation. And so the court unanimously rejected it, uh, despite the pleas of industry that they should rewrite the statute, require cost-benefit analysis uh, for everything. Um, Professor Barnett advocates for a system where individuals, anytime anything affects their liberty, could go into court and force the government to justify why they're restricting that individual's liberty. That would be a recipe for tremendous litigation. We already have lots of litigation, but it's done through challenges under the Administrative Procedure Act where the agencies have to follow these procedures. Right now, President Obama's Clean Power Plan is set to be, has lots and lots of legal challenges to it. They'll be heard by the DC Circuit on June 2nd. I submit that that's a better way of dealing with this than letting each individual uh, try to force the government without any presumption of constitutionality to strike things down. Now, the reason the US has the oldest written constitution is because of its capacity to evolve. It has evolved and changed over time. Um, when I was clerking on the Supreme Court, the court was not ideologically split, but there was one justice, a new justice, William F. H. Rehnquist, who had a real ideological agenda. As a result, Justice White would always make two clerks read anything that came from Rehnquist's chambers. And we, in keeping with the Supreme Court tradition, had an opportunity to have lunch with each of the justices. And at the time, this was 1980, uh, we asked Justice Rehnquist, what decision are you most proud of? And he said, National League of Cities versus Ussery, a case where a five to four majority of the court had struck down federal wage and hour legislation as applied to state government 
employees. And we said, why are you so proud of that? He said, I view it as an agent in place. He had as an agenda, and he made this quite explicit in his early dissent in the Wirtz case, an agenda to restore limits on federal power. And he eventually accomplished that with the Lopez decision, with the uh, Prince decision, to, in a way that didn't threaten radical change in our entire system of federalism, sent a shot over the bow of Congress to say, you need to be much more careful in defining why what you're regulating substantially affects interstate commerce. Now, just a few days before Justice Scalia died, Chief Justice Roberts, in a talk at New England Law School, said that partisan extremism is damaging the public's perception of the role of the court. He said that particularly given the increased politicization of the confirmation process, the public starts thinking about the Supreme Court not as a legal institution so much, but as a political institution. Unfortunately, I think Professor Barnett's approach that he advocates in the book would exacerbate this tendency. Um, when President Obama announced that he was going to make a Supreme Court nomination for the vacant Scalia seat, the Republican leadership immediately announced, we will not even consider it, so don't bother. This was truly unprecedented, the idea no hearings, no nothing, we're not even going to consider it, uh, who you nominate. And President Obama surprised lots of people by moderating, by nominating a justice who is agreed to be very well qualified by virtually everyone, and yet the Senate will not even hold hearings on the nomination, and even though uh, Judge Garland was a classmate of Randy Barnett's, and he agrees that he's a very uh, smart, qualified person. He says being qualified is no longer enough. Well, what is enough? What is enough is that apparently uh, the Republican Party now feels like we should just blind ourselves, not let the public hear the views of Justice Garland at these hearings, and wait until maybe we have a new president who would appoint justices who would reach our preferred political outcomes. I submit that that is moving us further away from the rule of law and is a very dangerous uh, tendency. Uh, and uh, I would hope that despite the fact that maybe many of you would not share Justice Garland's uh, preferences with respect to uh, how certain cases would be decided, uh, that you would realize what a shameful situation this is when we have such intense politicization of the most important uh, institution in America to preserve the rule of law and the independent uh, judiciary. Now, uh, in conclusion, um, the Constitution and interpretations of it are always going to be an evolving process. But it should evolve not through radical change like this book uh, represents, not through politicizing the Supreme Court and when we get our fifth justice who's going to decide everything our way because he's beholden to the Republican Party, witness the condemnation 
by the right wing in the Tea Party of Chief Justice Roberts, who's an excellent uh, justice in the tradition of trying to maintain respect for the rule of law, just because in one case he didn't buy the preferred political outcome uh, of what they wanted. Uh, Professor Barnett's colleague David Cole has a new book out uh, called Engines of Liberty, where he illustrates how the way constitutional change happens, whether it's for gun rights in the Heller case or marriage equality in the Oberfell case, is through groups having long-term strategies to change public opinion, to educate people about constitutional history. Uh, that is what Professor Barnett's book is uh, trying to do. Uh, the fact that Professor Cole says responsiveness of constitutional law to the evolution of social norms is a historical fact. And given the open-ended character of many of the Constitution's guarantees, it is inevitable. Um, I submit that this is the better way to see our Constitution evolve rather than through the radical change that's advocated in his book. Now, Professor Barnett does indicate that uh, he thinks he could only accomplish this if a central part of the Democrat of the Republican Party platform embraced his view of the Republican Constitution. Yet he also admits that some of the changes would be better off done through constitutional amendment. He wants to repeal the 16th Amendment. And those of us who signed checks on Monday to send to the IRS, that certainly sounds appealing to eliminate federal income taxation. Uh, he's also hostile towards the 17th Amendment. And so in many ways, that would allow uh, direct election of senators. So in many ways, his book wants to take us back in time uh, quite a bit and to work uh, radical change. But if we want to, to keep the republic, as Madison says, uh, I think it's best that we try not to politicize the courts. Thank you. Well, we at Cato never promise our main speakers a free ride. And I want to thank Professor Percival for keeping the tradition alive now to tell us why the living Constitution should have a stake driven through it until it is dead, 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 we'll hear a response from Randy Barnett. Well, as Ed Meese once said, um, the only living Constitution is a Constitution that's followed. Constitution that's ignored and followed, that's a dead constitution. So no, I'm in favor of a living one. I'm in favor of the one that's in the Cato Constitution, the one that we have enacted. Well, thanks, uh, Professor Percival, for those, uh, those very, kind, those very uh, insightful and stimulating remarks. Um, I could see that Professor Percival was really very nostalgic. They were nostalgic remarks. And what was he nostalgic for? He was nostalgic for the good old days. We all like the good old days, right? We're, we're at the age when the good old days look so good. And we're, what were the good old days for Professor Percival? It was back in the days when he clerked on the court and all the justices agreed with each other about how the Constitution should be interpreted. Yeah, I can imagine when all the justices agreed with each other about how the Constitution should be interpreted, then at that point, and you're going to confirm a new justice, all that really matters is their qualifications. Are they smart? 
are they honest? Do they have a judicial temperament? Of course, if everybody agrees with how the Constitution, what the Constitution stands for and how it should be interpreted, everything really turns around qualifications, nothing else. And then what's spoiled? Who, you know, who was the dog in the manger? Who started spoiling all the fun? It was Associate Justice William Rehnquist came on the court. And you know what his problem was, according to Professor Percival? He was ideological. All those other justices up there, they weren't ideological. They were just, I don't know, rule of law guys, we'll call them. They were just neutral. Um, it's Chief Ju it's Justice Rehnquist, Associate Justice Rehnquist. He came on. He was ideological. And what was the ideological in favor of, as Professor Percival tells us? It was in favor of federalism. That was it. Fe yeah, that's it. Federalism. That's how he was ideological. But you'll notice it's a strange kind of an ideological commitment. It's ideological commitment to a division of power between the federal and the state government. Well, you can call it ideological, but it isn't ideological with respect to the outcomes of particular cases. Chief Justice Rehnquist voted for Angel Rach and Diane Monson's claim to be able to use medical marijuana as authorized by state law under his principled commitment to federalism, not because he supported the use of medical marijuana as a policy result, but because he was committed to federalism. So that's what this terrible ideological guy, and ever since then, it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse because more of these ideological judges have gotten on the bench arguing for things like federalism, or in the recent case of the Obama executive action uh, orders, uh, separation of powers or the delegation of powers. We can't have that. That's too ideological. Well, one of the antidotes to this, I think, is the thesis of my book. The antidote to this way of talking about the problem is the, is the thesis of my book. It's not the political outcomes or the political preferences, as Professor Sandoval referred to them, that differentiate once, there are two sides of the court now, and really what the people who are nostalgic for the old days are nostalgic for is when there was only one side. Well, now we have a competition. We have two sides, and they are Ruth, roughly uh, coterminous with the two different parties. You can reliably count on the Democratic Party to appoint justices in the old mold, and you can kind of hope that sometimes the Republican Party might choose people who are actually opposed to that mode. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes the people they choose are good, and sometimes they're not. But what the antidote to this way of thinking of is in my book is that what separates the parties and what separates the justices is not simply a commitment to their political um, preferences, which is the way that Professor Sandoval put it as way most people put it. It's a commitment to two different visions of the Constitution. So it's useful to step back and see what separates those two visions. And there are different ways one could explain this, and I just, in my book, decided that the most effective way of understanding this was to understanding the difference between we the people as a group, in which we the people should presumptively be able to rule by majority rule, and we the people as individuals, in which we the people establish government to secure the rights of the individual. These are two different ways of looking at the Constitution. And I don't think that the Constitution is neutral with respect to these two views. I think it was deliberately crafted 
to adhere to the second of these two views. And it only can be made into a democratic constitution by ignoring key passages of its text, like, for example, the Ninth Amendment that says, the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, or the 14th Amendment, which says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Two of these provisions that if you came down from Mars and you read that in the constitution, you would think, boy, that sounds pretty important. And then somebody would, Professor Percival, could come along and tell you why it is that these two provisions are not enforced by the Supreme Court or by anyone else, and they are completely lost in our Republican Constitution. Why did they have to get rid of them and other provisions of the Constitution? Because our Constitution is really of the second variety. It's a Republican Constitution, and you need to adopt a living constitutionalist approach to get rid of the parts that get in the way of the Democratic Constitution. So um, I think what I'm hoping to propose is a compromise between the idea that, between denying that partisanship plays any role, which clearly does, Republicans have a different view than Democrats, and identifying what that difference is about, not naked political preferences as to outcomes, but competing judicial philosophies as to the Constitution. And I will say one more thing in response to how Professor Percival opened his remarks. Both of these visions of we the people are attractive and appealing. They really are which is why we can sometimes we try to hold both of them in our mind at the same time. Popular rule is appealing, individual rights are appealing. And for that reason, both positions actually incorporate elements of the other. The democratic constitution, the, the progressives who gave us the democratic constitution couldn't live under that regime for 10 minutes before they started to make exceptions to judicial deference for what they called fundamental rights or what they called suspect classifications of groups. So they immediately qualified their commitment to the democratic constitution, especially when the Republicans took control of Congress in 1946. Then they thought, well, wait a second, this judicial restraint thing, maybe we should rethink that. So that's talk, I talk about it in my book. By the same token, a Republican Constitution does integrate democratic governance, so to speak, into its structure. The House of Representatives is supposed to play that role. The jury is supposed to play that role. The Electoral College is supposed to play that role. In other words, the Republican Constitution does allow for democratic checks on power. It just doesn't pretend that these democratic checks are the same as the voice of the people. So ultimately, the difference between these two visions is what is your rule and what is your exception? The democratic rule is majoritarian rule, and they will give you select exceptions to that that they get to choose. The Republican rule is the rights of the individual, and then within that, the people do have elections, need elections, in order to check the power that their government has over them. And so each side really accommodates the other, but what we actually have in the document is a Republican Constitution. Thank you, Randy. Bob, would you like to yeah, make a no, – you, you do right from there. And we just have just a brief exchange, then we'll open it up. Yeah, he, he indicated uh, – Professor Barnett indicated I – maybe kind of nostalgic, maybe I am. Actually, the thing I'm missing most right now, I just took my students to an oral argument, and the absence of Justice Scalia makes oral arguments a lot less entertaining. Um, with respect to Rehnquist, I wasn't condemning him for having a strong ideological commitment to federalism. In fact, I think he demonstrated how that commitment transcended whether it was a conservative or a liberal cause. In case after case where California put a nuclear moratorium in place, 
He upheld it because he respected federalism, even though all the industry groups wanted it to be preempted by federal law. Every time a state would try to deal with the problem of interstate transport of hazardous waste by barring that waste from being disposed of in its state, the whole rest of the court would say it's a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause, but not Justice Rehnquist. He was truly nonpartisan and non um, liberal or conservative in his approach. He wasn't the least bit result-oriented in his approach to strongly supporting federalism. Uh, now, with respect to the other justices on the court, I don't think there was a you know, liberal group that was controlling the court at the time. Look at my own justice, uh, Byron White, the only justice appointed by President Kennedy. He was one of the two dissenters in Roe v. Wade, and he also was a dissenter in Miranda. Uh, finally, with respect to uh, the Supreme Court confirmation process. I just brought along some statistics with me. I note that President Nixon, a Republican, nominated William Rehnquist to the Supreme Court on October 22, 1971, when the Democrats had a 54 to 44 majority in the Senate. He was confirmed on December 10, 1971, less than two and a half months later. So it's incredible how our system has now gotten to the point where I fear for what will happen next. The Democrats elected president and the Republicans retain the Senate. Will they just say, oh, we like eight justices on the court. We're not going to even consider uh, Judge Garland or any subsequent nomination until four years later when we have a Republican president. Uh, we can't do this if we're going to retain our system of respect for the rule of law and an independent judiciary. A quick uh, response, Randy. I think if the Democrats had confirmed Robert Bork, somebody who I did not myself uh, support, but um, who I believed was qualified by every measure that Merrick Garland is qualified <clears throat> by, then I don't think we would be in the situation we are in today. But at that time, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Biden said at the time something I agreed with at the time, and that is judicial philosophy, he said, was ultimately as relevant as what we would call qualifications. Judicial philosophy was a legitimate part of the Senate's vetting of a president's appointment from the opposite party. Um, and that's all that I'm advocating, and that's all that the Republicans in, in the Senate are currently uh, saying is that judicial philosophy matters in addition to qualifications and that this is a sufficiently important matter that given the fact that this has happened during an election campaign season, it's the sort of thing that should be decided by the electorate um, uh, very shortly and it but, very shortly will be. But why not hold hearings to explore Judge Garland's judicial philosophy? Because it's, his judicial philosophy, I mean his judicial philosophy is relevant but the point is is that it, we, we, I think it would be unfair to him to make it about him. It's not about him. It's about the next choice, whoever they may be. He may or may not be the most reasonable nominee a Democratic uh, president might put forward. Uh, but I do think he is, his lower court opinions show that he's completely committed to the Democratic Constitution and he will vote in big cases the very same way all the other progressives vote in big cases, the way Elena Kagan votes, and I have an utmost regard for Elena Kagan uh, and, and think she's uh, brilliant. Uh, but she's quite um, committed to one vision of the Constitution, and this is something that ultimately uh, is decided by the political process, an elected president and an elected Senate, and they will decide it in November. Uh, the situation today is unprecedented in the following sense. 
in the modern era, the post-1900 era, there have been only four cases of vacancies during that occurred during a presidential election year. Uh, two were in 1916, one was in 1932, and one was in 1956. In the first three cases, the Senate was in the same party as the um, president. In the 1956 case, it was tantamount to that in the sense that when President, uh, when Chief, uh, when uh, Justice Vixen stepped down for health reasons, the same day President Eisenhower uh, nominated President William uh, um, Brennan as a um, um, as a uh, recess appointment, and uh, the next year he nominated him uh, for this seat, uh, and uh, the how the Senate was in Democratic hands by two votes, but the Southern Democrats at that time voted with the, um, with the uh, Republicans in many cases, and so that was not really relevant either. Uh, this uh, situation here is one that is unprecedented in the modern era, and um, it's hardly a case in which the president can stand on principled grounds since he joined the filibuster against, against uh, Sam Alito uh, in the very first year of um, uh, uh, the second term of President Bush, not in a presidential year. Moreover, the, we seem to forget that when President Bush made nine appellate court nominations on May 9th, 9, uh, 2001, the Democratic Senate sat on those nominations for nearly two years, and they included such people as, uh, as uh, John Roberts, Michael McConnell, Miguel Estrada, uh, and other extraordinarily uh, uh, well-qualified people for those appellate seats. Let's go now to your questions, and if you would wait for the microphone to get to you, uh, if you would uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and let me also uh, ask you to, while one person is asking a question, let me know that you want to ask a question so that we can get the mic to you uh, and, and have little downtime as possible. All right, let's start right up here, and then let's go secondly to the gentleman in the green shirt right here. Hi, my name is Lex McCusker, and I am unaffiliated. My question is for, for Professor Barnett. I, I, I'd like to introduce a, a sense of, uh, of reality into this discussion. You talk about restoring the Republican Constitution. To what extent is it possible in any way, shape, or form to do that? Hasn't it been dead for since 1938? I mean, do you imagine that the uh, something like Helvering will be, there's, there's a court in our future that will reverse Helvering and restore the the enumerated powers or that the uh, ability to regulate everything under the Commerce Clause uh, uh, will, will be somehow limited. Uh, tell me how, how the Republican Constitution gets um, reinstated or restored somehow. Well, that's a great question. Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist adopted a, a strategy, uh, which I call the this far and no farther strategy, 
um, uh, it was a moderate, it's an in-between strategy, and that is he said, look, we'll take all previous expansions of federal power and consider that to be the high watermark of federal power. And if you want to go beyond that, you better have special justification for doing that, and the justification you offer should not also be consistent with unlimited power in the hands of Congress. And that's what Lopez represented, that's what Morrison represented, that's what Rach was a bit of a backing away from, but that's what five votes in NFIB represented in the healthcare case, because mandating you to do a particular, buy a particular product was something Congress had never tried before, it was going above that line, and that every justification offered on behalf of it basically said Congress can do whatever it wants, which is what the dream list of progressives has been. So one way to deal with this is simply to hold the line. Even that was considered to be radical when it was done. And the way all constitutional change happens is it happens gradually, whether we like it to or not. What matters is what direction it's going, not how fast you get to that point, but what direction it goes. And you can certainly slow, and then you can limit, and then you can stop, and then you can gradually roll back. And that's the way these will happen on a multi-member court the, the members of which the constituents of which will evolve over time with multiple cases, um, that's actually how it will happen. But it isn't going to happen unless you understand the different conceptions of the Constitution that are in play. As long as you confuse this with political disagreement and not a matter of political principle, um, it's not going to happen. And then you see what the ultimate goal should be, and then you can work towards that end. Andy Hawks, I'm a local attorney. My question is about Professor Barnett's discussion of the Declaration. Um, what is your understanding of why Jefferson used life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness over the more common phrase life, liberty, and property? And does that change have any significance for your conception of the Republican Constitution? No one is entirely sure why that change was made. It's a matter of speculation. It was done uh, in the course of drafting this over a very short period of time. Um, there has been, there's been speculation. I don't even want to entertain what that speculation is. Uh, the canonical formulation um, of our natural rights was actually George Mason's draft for the Virginia Declaration of Rights that Jefferson was copying from. And, uh, Mason had sent him a copy. I tell this story in the book. Mason had sent him a copy of his draft declaration that he had drafted only a couple of months earlier, and Jefferson had it in front of them when he did the more succinct life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it was actually Mason's draft, which does talk about the acquisition and enjoyment of property, um, that was copied by several other state constitutions, including the um, uh, Massachusetts Convention, uh, Massachusetts Constitution, and ultimately it was Mason's version that uh, led to the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts by the Supreme Judicial Court. So I honestly don't want to speculate about why he changed those words, but it was Mason's formulation that ultimately became the more canonical version um, that, that was um, spread throughout the, the United States at that time. Wally. Hi, I'm Walter Olson with Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. A question for both, but particularly for uh, Randy Barnett. <clears throat> uh, with the general uh, logjam of uh, constitutional amendment 
uh, process so that nothing much seems to be getting through in constitutional amendments. There's been um, a boomlet of, of renewed interest in the Article 5 constitutional convention process. I wondered if you could say a little about how, how and whether this maps onto the Republican versus Democratic uh, idea of the Constitution, the idea of, of uh, calling a convention to, to amend it. Well, I, I, by the way, am involved in some Article 5 movements, uh, and I do endorse Article 5 at the end of the uh, book, which uh, Professor uh, Percival mentioned in the course of his comments. Um, it really would depend on what amendments are being proposed. We had progressive amendments that it were made part of the Constitution, like the income tax amendment, um, that made our Constitution less Republican, uh, in part because it generated so much money for the federal government that they could buy off states with the money that was being collected from their own state citizens and actually coerce them into taking part in federal programs. Otherwise, their citizens don't get their money back. Um, so it, it, didn't, it wasn't meant to have this effect, but it did. So whether an Article V convention, which is perfectly permissible under the of the Constitution, it's perfectly okay to change the Constitution under the Constitution, whether that is going to serve Republican or Democratic ends will depend on the substance of the amendments that are under consideration at such a convention. Um, and I favor amendments that would make the Constitution more Republican in the sense I use it, and, um, and that's why I think, and there's two purposes of this. One is to correct Supreme Court decisions in a way that the Supreme Court itself is not going to do, and the other one is to fix uh, some of the problems that we now know exist with our Republican Constitution, which is not a perfect Constitution. And the point that uh, Randy raises with respect to the 16th Amendment and the uh, misuse of the spending and general welfare clauses uh, is nicely set forth uh, in James Buckley's book, Saving Congress from Itself, about grants and aid that uh, involve the federal government or Congress sending money to the states, uh, picking up 80% of the tab if the uh, states will only put in another 10 or 20%, uh, and then dictating the uses to which uh, that money shall be put, uh, in time then removing that money, leaving the programs in the hands of the states for projects that they, had they spent their own money, would probably never have chosen. So James Buckley's book, that we featured here at Cato, Saving Congress from Itself, uh, addresses that problem uh, in a wide variety of contexts. Uh, Bob, you had also some comments on uh, the amendment just, process. I wanted to say that uh, Randy does a very nice job in his book of covering uh, the Article 5 convention possibility. What's scary about it is, given the incredibly strange state of our politics today, uh, as Randy indicates, uh, it would depend on who's going to be at that convention, uh, the possibility of you know, wholesale changes in the Constitution is very scary uh, to people, uh, should be very scary to people of all political stripes. Now, Randy does point out in his book that, of course, they can propose amendments. They still would have to be ratified by the states. But I would argue in our current state of politics that there's not, nothing to justify such a, a radical step. Of course, it would take only 13 legislative bodies to block um, any uh, amendments, but during this election season, I'm not sure that that would uh, s save us. Um, yes, right here. Um, uh, Ken Masugi, Johns Hopkins. Um, the only mention of Republican in the Constitution is the Guarantee Clause, the, uh, the 
national government's uh, uh, obligation to guarantee a Republican government to the states. And uh, what it seems to me what you're suggesting is that the Constitution itself is a Republican guarantee of national government, uh, to the national government. And um, uh, Justice, it, it, of course, we know the Republican guarantee clause was rendered uh, irrelevant by uh, Chief Justice Taney in an antebellum case, but Justice Thomas has recently revived it in the case of uh, apportionment. So I, I might, uh, I'd like you to speculate on uh, how this could all work together for the uh, restoration of national Republican government. Well, thank you, Ken. I actually haven't thought, I haven't, I haven't read Justice Thomas's opinion yet, although I've read about it. Um, and I haven't thought through exactly um, an answer to the question you asked, so I don't want to speculate uh, or sp too much um, uh, on, on C-SPAN about uh, what, my, what I might be thinking about this. But I will say uh, that it was after, it was almost immediately after our Republican Constitution, this one, was devised to solve a problem that they, needed, they felt needed solving that virtually every state then copied it. it all the states had a variety of different forms, many of which were, as I say, much more democratic. And almost immediately after this was invented, as controversial as this was in getting it passed, because it only passed narrowly, within a few years, every state had emulated this form of government in the states. And that's why all the states have three branches of government. I mean, there's a few variations amongst our states. And so the very meaning of Republican government, I believe, had changed at that point towards this form of government, away from the more democratic governments that's, that had dominated states before. Hello. Uh, Janice Walt Grenadier, uh, Pro Se America, and Jam Justice, a new software to help keep our judiciary um, accountable. Um, you mentioned the situation regarding um, Judge uh, Merrick Garland and if it should be heard. Hasn't he basically impeached himself um, from having the ability to treat the judiciary correctly when he recused himself from holding Judge um, Richard Roberts accountable for um, the rape of the 16-year-old as a victim when he was a prosecuting attorney, when he made the decision to recuse himself and not hold the judge accountable, and we as Americans are going to be paying his salary now with his retirement. And this seems to be a pattern in practice with the judges not holding each other accountable when they are self-policing. Well, look, I know Merrick. Um, I think very highly of him. Um, I am, I've heard about the case that you're talking about. I don't know specifically why he recused himself. The, re the effect of him recusing himself is another judge would hear the case uh, that he wouldn't hear for whatever reason. So, um, and I do think that um, the, the reason why the Republicans should not go forward with nominations has nothing whatsoever to do with his own personal merit or his own personal integrity. Uh, and I can imagine that he would be a fine Supreme Court justice if I agreed with his vision of the Constitution. And I, I would just let it go with that. I, I will say one thing. One of the concerns he expressed to me in his being nominated is that somehow his reputation uh, might be 
you know, you know, dragged through the mud. And I told him that I didn't think that the Republicans in the Senate had any interest in doing that. Um, and I can't, I said I couldn't speak for interest groups or activist groups, but I certainly didn't think the Republicans in the Senate did. And as long as the Republicans stick to their principle that it doesn't matter who's appointed, this decision should be put off past November, then I think that, his, that, that we should avoid any sort of personal uh, attacks on, on Judge Garland. Tim. Uh, Tim Lynch with Cato. Uh, this question can be for both panelists, but is primarily for Randy Barnett. You make a strong case for the Republican Constitution over the Democratic Constitution, but can you talk a little bit more about the third school that you alluded to, which is kind of the result-oriented school, which, which is really the popular view, which is people who if they don't like a law, they want the Supreme Court to invalidate it. And if they do like a law, they want the Supreme Court to uphold it. And it's kind of awkward, I know, because to my knowledge, no scholar has written a book defending or coming to the defense of this third school. But it's probably the popular understanding in our, in our culture today. I certainly run across it in, in, in my travels. and it's, So I think it may be a more powerful school than either the Republican or the Democratic schools of thought that you've been talking about? I'm against. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all have our priors. We all, we, all of our um, instincts about any case we first hear about is influenced by how we want it to come out. I'm like that, you're like that, everybody's like that. Um, we have a rule of law in order to temper our, pri our priors, our prior commitments, to qualify it, to make us run our priors through some other way of analyzing things to see if we're okay, if, if it's justified for us to get our way this time. And so, sure, we start with our priors, and I, you know, we evaluate constitutional arguments as to whether they're persuasive or not, in part based on those priors, but then those arguments are tested against our op op opponents and, our, and objections to those arguments, and eventually we should try to reach considered judgments on whether um, uh, they fit with the rule of law, not simply with our political predispositions. And really the only main message that I'm trying to get through, not the only one, but one of the messages I'm trying to get through in this book is that what separates, in loose respects, people on the left from people on the right within the legal system, within the legal culture, is not a pure disagreement over outcomes. It's not what separates the left side of the court from the right side of the court. Sure, they all have their rooting interest in this outcome or that outcome, but what genuinely separates them is their commitment to one vision of the Constitution over the other, the Democratic Constitution with qualifications or a Republican Constitution with exceptions. Which one is the vision that motivates them? And that more explains their behavior that looks partisan than simply, I like this outcome, you like that outcome, and we're going to figure out a way to rationalize it. You know, I think the best example of that is Antonin Scalia's um, opinions in the two flag-burning cases uh, that came up in 1989 and 1990. He obviously was not a fan of flag-burning, but he found the law unconstitutional. And uh, as he said afterward, when he went down for breakfast that morning, his wife was marching around the table singing, It's a Grand Old Flag. Could, could I add one more thing? I think, I think constitutional law professors are somewhat at fault for this because I think the way constitutional law tends to be taught even in law school is you have a class discussion in con law and you say make it on flag burning. 
Are you for flag burning or are you against flag burning? Now, make an argument on behalf of your side. Now, you make an argument on behalf of the other side, and they make it out to be in class, and anybody who sat through con law can testify to this. They make it out to be that, look, you pick, your, you pick what your outcome is, and then you marshal every argument in favor of that outcome, and, you wait, and the other side does the same thing, and then a judge will pick which outcome they like. This is the picture or portrait of the practice of constitutional law that actually is taught in constitutional law classes. So it isn't a surprise that the general public would have this view if con law professors teach con law this way. But I don't think ultimately it is the way that the justices ultimately decide cases. I'm not saying they never do. I'm just saying basically they are committed more to the principles of the Constitution. They just disagree in a partisan way over what those principles are. And it's useful for us to focus on that because if we only pick judges that we think agree with our outcomes, we're going to be disappointed in those judges if, in fact, they actually hold principles adverse to the way we think the Constitution should generally be interpreted. Bob? Statutes are much easier to change than the Constitution is to amend. And that's why it's unfortunate if the prescription is we should have much more judicial activism that will encourage lawsuits claiming that because you didn't reach my preferred outcome, this is unconstitutional. Uh, it would really leave things in a mess. So uh, in that sense, uh, I think we're far better off if we try to affect change by uh, changing statutes than trying to get the court to create scores of new constitutional doctrines that limit our ability to uh, react to problems. Karen? Thanks. Uh, Garrett Snedeker with the James Wilson Institute. Um, I wanted James Wilson. <laughs> Our most neglected founder, James Wilson. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if you thought that maybe the best practical way to restore our republic, this is Professor Barnett, uh, to restore our Republican Constitution is uh, following some of the uh, prescriptions of Charles Murray and uh, his recent book of uh, funding outfits like the Institute for Justice uh, and other uh, legal outfits, Todd Gaziano's group, uh, Pacific Legal uh, as well, um, to test in the most demanding way the uh, laws that are on the books um, in the states. Uh, I only ask it because, um, Mr. Lynch, uh, I think the, uh, the third approach that, that, uh, that he um, was giving voice to, I don't, I don't know if he was for or against it, but just, uh, just wanted to put it out there. <laughs> he wouldn't um, be here at Cato if he were for it. Yeah, it, it, speaks, it's, it, speak, it speaks to how I think uh, the law is... Uh, regarded by by folks um, who would not demand that it have any coherent rational justification. Rather, it's I like it as if I like vanilla or chocolate ice cream. And uh, I would ask if you thought that the approach, um, which doesn't uh, seem to be, as Professor Percival would say, to be um, you know cooked up by uh, you know law law professors. I think it's it's a pretty organic from the ground up uh, problem. You know, hair, uh, eyebrow threaders in Texas. Um, you know, dental hygienists in North Carolina seems to be practical problems in the real world. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could articulate how you know those cases uh, you know might be a way to um, help restore the our Republican Constitution. Well, not to pander too much, I will just say this gentleman is from the James Wilson Institute that the chap that I have a chapter in the book which in which Wilson figures prominently because in his decision in Chisholm versus Georgia he well articulated the individual conception of popular sovereignty that I favor and in fact I got that idea essentially from James from James Wilson, our most neglected founder. My second pander 
um, will be for the Institute for Justice. I, I actually ran into somebody from IJ last night, and I said to him that my book, I have a new book out. He goes, oh, what's it about? I said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a big historical treatment. It starts at the founding, and then it tells the entire story of the United States that culminates in the formation of the Institute for Justice. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's how it all ends, right? And at the end, I talk about Clark Neely's book, Terms of Engagement, and I list all the, court, the cases that he talks about in his book um, as the way, uh, as, as heroic efforts to try to identify irrational and arbitrary laws at the local level. So again, I pander to uh, the Institute for Justice. Um, and finally, my final pander is to Charles Murray and his excellent book, which I blurbed. Um, I do think it's a very provocative book. I think the first 80 pages are one of the most succinct summations of law for first-year law students. I recommend it to first-year law students because it's an overview of what all the law they're going to be learning and what's wrong with it as first-year law students. And as for his proposals, uh, some of them I think are more workable than others, but the idea that there could be free representation to challenge uh, laws that are irrational or arbitrary um, would be a way of disciplining administrative agencies at the state and local level. And these are oftentimes since boards that are dominated by industry people that just basically use them to cartelize their industry. Um, and this is a wonderful, um, uh, in a sense, a market alternative to uh, a, a check that could be put on government power, assuming you have judges who are prepared to hear these cases as neutral magistrates. And that's something this book is an effort to get us to. This is a book about what role judges should have. And at the end of the book, I argue judges do have a role in screening out irrational and arbitrary laws, and it's only if they think they do can the, ca can the cases that the Institute for Justice brings be decided fairly. Sir, you've been very patient. David Zobelson, Washington, D.C. Uh, when I taught constitutional law, I never taught it the way that Professor Barnett describes, and I'm sure neither of the professors on the panel taught teach constitutional law that way. Can I hear something to reconcile the discomfort you described, Professor Barnett, that James Madison had with uh, popular democracy with his documented uh, urging at the Constitutional Convention for uh, a proportional representation and against the idea of a malapportioned Senate, an uh, argument that he eventually gave up at the Constitutional Convention as a way of uh, a political compromise in getting the Constitution passed? Well, there was a lot of back and forth. James Madison's original overall scheme did not get adopted um, as it was proposed. Nobody's original scheme did get adopted as it was proposed. And Madison, coming from a powerful big state, wanted powerful big states to call the shots uh, in the convention. And lo and behold, the, the, the representatives from the smaller, less powerful states were opposed to that, and to get them on board, a compromise had to be made in which the size of your state mattered in one house and the size of your state did not matter in the other house. And so this is how compromises um, are done. Um, and Madison was a representative of, of Virginia, and he looked out for Virginia's interest in doing that. Uh, and that really is not in all in conflict with his other commitment to the idea that popular input uh, for one thing, these, these, you know, the Senate, well, I don't know what the state of play selection was at the time this was being proposed, so let me not go there. But this, none of this went against his commitment that the voice of the people, which he believed did play a role in government, needed to be filtered. 
it needed to be filtered in order to protect the rights of the minority and the, and the individual. He believed that as well. And so there were filtration mechanisms, he felt, that were necessarily put in place in all three branches of government in which the voice of the people would be heard, but it would not necessarily decide the question. The House of Representatives would be the most popular branch of the legislative branch. The jury, which, had a, which could judge both the law and the facts, of every, the facts and the law in every case would be popular input into the judicial branch when the assumption was every case would be a jury case. And, in the, and the presidential selection would be done by a uh, electoral college that was sent, was, that was the, the delegates to which would also be elected popularly. So there would be a popular input into all three branches. They, it just wasn't to be confused with a unitary voice of the people, a concept that really did not become popular until the rise of the modern Democratic Party, which I talk about in the book in the uh, 1820s and 1830s when they started calling themselves the democracy because they were the party in which the will of the people would be heard, that one party and only that one party. Well, thank you, Professors Barnett and Percival. The book, again, is Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People by Professor Randy Barnett. Uh, it's available outside for uh, a discount, and Randy will be glad to sign it for you. It's available in better bookstores everywhere and Costco uh, if, you, if we run out of books outside. Uh, I could just say that I, I always aspired to write a book you could buy in the airport. But even I never could even imagine I'd write a book you could buy at Costco. So this, was, this has been a huge accomplishment. <laughs> um, we are going to break for lunch in the second level up the sp uh, spiral staircase uh, at the George M. Yeager Conference Center there. Uh, but before we do, please, let's have a warm round of applause for our speakers.